Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally, voidware prohibited, must be 18 or older to enter, no purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. In this Lady Boss interview series episode, Kat McDavid interviews Mandira Singh, who serves as the SVP Operations and GTM at Point Click Care. They deliver results for more than a thousand hospitals and every national health plan in the United States. So let's hear what she has to say. Hey everyone, Kat McDavid, and I have another super amazing lady boss to interview today. Uh, Mandra Singh, she is the Senior Vice President of the Acute Impair Segment at Point Click Care. Thanks, and thanks for having me, Kat. Um, so um, I currently serve as the SVP of the Acute Impair Segment at Point Click Care. Point Click Care, for those of you who don't know, is um, the biggest uh, system of record or EHR for the long-term post-acute care segment. Um, so really the behemoth in that industry. Um, and I joined Point Click Care as part of the acquisition of um, Collective Medical, where I serve as Chief Operating Officer, um, and got to work with Kat McDavid, which was um, just a, a highlight of my career. It was, it was like a peach. Every day was like Christmas. Everybody knows that. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I, we, I, have, I have a lot that I want everyone to hear about Mandra, but um, wh- what's what's kind of interesting, not the most interesting thing about you, obviously, um, is you have a kind of an amazing background. So raised in a diff- different countries, um, came to the U.S., had like a totally different track, and, and now you're kind of um, corporate lady boss. So like, give us the whole spiel. It's super interesting. Yeah, it's kind of it's it's uh, I you know I'm it's just not a path that you look at and think it's it's linear, which makes it easy for me to say this is there was no plan to get here. But um, um, it, it's it's interesting to take a step back and look at all of that. So, like you said, I was I was actually born in Nepal in Kathmandu um, and lived there until I was eleven, and then did um, high school in India, in New Delhi, where which is where most of my family still is. Um, and uh, started training in um, in opera at a really young age. So um, in sixth grade, kind of uh, got picked up by my by a music teacher uh, and started singing then. And so um, came to the U.S. primarily to study opera. Um, and um, you know, studied that in college. Um, did you know my senior thesis was a year, uh, a three hour recital in languages in different um, uh, stages of music. Um, but then, uh, you know, as most music majors do, I graduated and became an investment banker. Uh, yeah, that's like that's uh, what I hear all of them do. 
Um, uh, so no joke, I think, um, you know, a lot that led to that decision. Um, part, part of it was just like, I wanted to stay in the country and it turns out work visas don't, um, aren't all that accessible if you're a musician. Um, uh, but also kind of, um, uh, the lifestyle of a musician, again, ironic coming from someone who picked investment banking, the lifestyle of a musician and really the, the always vying for a solo was, didn't, didn't sit well with me over time and, um, ended up in investment banking at JP Morgan at a group at the time. I don't know why they put these industries together, but it was consumer healthcare and retail. So you'd be working on a deal for like dress barn. Um, and then all of a sudden pivot and like work for a life sciences biotech company that was trying to solve like an orphan disease. Right. Um, and so that's kind of when my, uh, romance with healthcare started is, um, I was really struck by that dichotomy. I mean, I joined that group because, um, I like clothes, like literally as a, as a college student, I was like, I like clothes. I will work in retail investment. Seriously? Perfect. That's how it happened? Yes. You're like, oh, I don't, no. my opera singing's not for me. I need a visa and I like clothes. So I'm going to go take this really hard Retail. job. Got it. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and in all fairness, I had interned at JP Morgan as a junior and did syndicated leverage finance um, in like TMT and semiconductors. And I was like, as I does. don't care about semiconductors. I don't care. Do like clothes. We'll work in clothes. So that, that was the logic. It was a little bit more than what I shared before. But um, I was just really struck by actually the difference in the management teams, right? Not thinking I would end there, ever, ever end up there. But um, you'd have these like retail CEOs who like came in and were really focused on like the numbers, right? Like how do we sell more? How do we drive our margins? Like what's going on? Uh, how do we sell more widgets, right? If you will. Um, and then you had these biotech CEOs who came in and they like the the drug that like catered to this orphan um, disease, right? Had just gotten through animal trials, right? So we're talking years and years and years before this thing sees the light of day. One million ways it could fail, but they were so excited and so bought in, right? Because at the end of the day, solving this giant problem and having this impact on patients was like that meaningful to them. And that dichotomy to me was really telling. And I just gravitated towards these scientists and, and um, life sciences CEOs who were, who were really focused on that impact against kind of all odds. Um, and since then, it's kind of, I've, it's, it's been uh, all healthcare for me, um, kind of by design. I can't quit it. Um, I, I found my segment of it because no matter how much I Google, um, I'm not going to be as smart on science as the scientists. And, um, you know, um, I'm not going back to get my medical degree either. And so um, that's what drove me towards um, health IT with the passing of the High Tech Act. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and I've been kind of hooked ever since. Yeah, I mean, so what I love about that story is, because um, not everybody knows you, right? So, so Mandra is kind of a genius at making things work and taking very messy things and making them not messy um, and optimizing and things like that. Like basically everything I'm bad at. And so what I think is crazy about your, your story and getting into your career is like, it's not processy at all, right? <laughs> so you followed your gut, you felt good about things. Um, and so it, it's very much a um, you just kind of leaned into what you felt good about, which I think is kind of, kind of awesome knowing you. <laughs> Yeah, no, and it wasn't, it definitely wasn't without its challenges, but I think, 
in some part, so after investment banking, I went to venture capital, right, and started investing um, in companies at a firm called Essex Woodlands. Um, and I think it, it's honestly just this idea of like the, the learning associated with it. So I only got into health tech because it happened to be when ARA and high tech got passed, and no one at the firm that I was at, which was really life sciences focused, wanted to get their arms around it. So I was like, well, let me figure it out, which will be funny to you, Kat, because I rely on you so much for like what's going on in policy <laughs> land. But at the time, um, I, I was, you know, uh, policy land. And so, um, but learning and digging my, my fingers in was, was so, um, was so rewarding. Um, again, on just, uh, understanding what is, uh, what we all know to be just such a complicated system and, and industry, right? Um, but no, it's, it's, it's far from clean and far from linear, which uh, to your point is not always how I roll, but uh, uh, but very much following people and learning and, and kind of, um, and again, having impact. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, even I think in, in the parts of your career that I know, right, I know about the Athena Health Stint, obviously Collective and now Point Click Care. Uh, so you've done some like very, very cool things that are um, pretty well known today. So I know that the More Disruption Please platform from Athena, I'm not sure if it's still called that, but that was a big deal uh, you know, yeah. a couple of years ago. And so Mandra led that platform, which uh, when, when she came to interview at Collective, we were all like, oh, I don't know if she's going to come work for us. Like, <laughs> she's kind of a big deal, right? Um, but you've done some things that I think are really hard. I would say, honestly, um, your role as COO of Collective was also a super hard thing and and you know people might not think being a COO is high risk but I think I think in um looking back it probably was right so so talk to me about um kind of balancing the risk taking with some of these like massive endeavors right like um from what I understand you you did start and launch the MVP program and um and it's it was definitely one of the model platforms of its time yeah no it's it's um um, so I got recruited to Athena um, by Kyle Armbrechter, who's now um, the CEO of Signify Health. Um, and he, they had this on like paper. It was like this, this idea of this marketplace of, of driving um, lots of entrepreneurs to the platform. Um, and the mission was just awesome, right? It was like, why is data all tied up? Um, let's make it flow more freely and kind of drive better end user experience to these providers who don't like being stuck in an EHR. Um, and it's where like, uh, Jonathan Bush, like as this visionary CEO, this was a project that was so close to his heart. And so for me, kind of fresh out of business school, it was this really awesome opportunity to, to, to take something, um, and grow it from like a MVP, um, to something, uh, that was like driving a lot of value. Um, and that came in bits and pieces. It started off very much as this corporate development, um, kind of, um, vision, um, but ended up being kind of a business, right? Where we had a front end, um, my team at Athena saw, saw like 1,200 to 1,500 demos of health IT startups a year. Um, and and that mission uh, was really noble um, and really drove, I think, a lot of value. Um, I own the API library. Um, and as that grew, we saw that kind of ripple across the industry where all of a sudden the API from an EHR was not a... Uh, hope and a dream, but an expectation. And I, and that's where it is today, right? Um, Epic now has the Apple Orchard. Uh, you see marketplaces kind of um, um, across the EHRs. And I think that uh, more disruption, please, and the energy that we created around this and, and really the advocacy around um, being able to drive interoperability at a end user uh, provider level um, um, really had, had a lot of influence. And it was such a cool thing to be able to build that team. We felt like a bunch of renegades. It was like a 
startup within Athena yeah. uh, and Deal. Yeah, yeah, we're um, in a startup, which is cool, or a startup within a big company. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, um, and that that I think uh, that scrappiness and then the figuring stuff out is um, has is is kind of a lot of what I enjoy about those about taking the ball of yarn or the knot and like undoing it slowly, right? It's like, how do you get people to, to really work together and align around a mission, um, even if it's not strictly within their job description? That's exactly how we got MVP done with a lot of people believing that what we were working on um, was the right thing to work on. And, and, um, and even if it wasn't perfectly what they were hired to do. So, so how'd you do it? Because like, this is definitely not one of my areas of strength. <laughs> Teach us. Yeah, well... Um, I mean, a lot of it started with just kind of, it was a supply and demand, right? So um, it started with, okay, if we're going to build an API library, let's make sure it's what folks are looking for. And my customer was twofold. So um, the customer was the startup. So think about the folks starting the next health IT solution in their garage and trying to get to providers. We all know selling into providers is super painful, right? We're talking about sales cycles that are... um, a year for a small provider practice. And so our whole mission was to cut that down. And the way we did that was to drive plug and play. So the ability to actually activate within your within the system um, and then to generate um, the supply of solutions that met the demand of our providers. So things like scheduling, telehealth, these were things that our providers wanted to use. They were using them, but they were swivel chairing and double logging in and doing all these things, making it work because that's how low their expectation of healthcare systems working together was. And on the startup side, they were knocking on doors and hoping that enough providers bought to actually sustain them, right? Um, So by opening up the right APIs and being demand-driven on like, what are the APIs that allow us to get the most kind of engagement on this platform? And then really working across Athena, and this is where like influence without authority, I think is a really meaningful skill to have, right? In corporate America, generally. Um, We were able to like really open up that real estate within the EHR um, to drive that interoperability. Um, And then slowly but surely, we built this team of folks where we had a little mini company that was like flipping the switches and making sure everything worked, um, which allowed us to have, um, you know, at the end of a couple of years, um, uh, real revenue flowing through it. Um, and, you know, I think today there's like over 400 apps that are on, um, on the marketplace that allow a provider to like very quickly choose and activate something um, to be able to, to use it interoperably within their system of record. That's, I mean, I can feel the energy. It sounds awesome. It's so, so you, you know, we talk about you've been at these companies, right? But you had really interesting roles at each of them, right? So you were kind of a, a mini CEO uh, at Athena running this startup within the big company. Um, and when you were at Collective, you have uh, had a couple roles or tr- three roles there that I can remember, right? So you came in kind of doing partnerships. And I remember like, we were all like, whoa, she just got like a whole bunch of deals done that nobody's gotten done, right? You, you, you know how to negotiate with, with various parties. And I think, again, to your point about, you should probably tell us how you do it, the influence without authority. And then you went on to lead product, you were head of product, and then you became COO. Um, and now, now you're kind of like leading uh, most of like, from what I understand, go to market for most of the AMP division, right? At Point Click Care. So, um, I mean, talk to us about changes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you put it that way, it sounds a little insane, but not for me to take it, but for like, a company like Collective to oh. give you those opportunities as well, right? To be like, hey, you've never really run product, want to try? Um, 
But I, I, I think the commonality there is just kind of a willingness to be like, I don't know what I don't know. So when I started at Athena, no joke, I had signed up to take over an API library. I could not have told you what an API was. And that's embarrassing. But I bought the architect at the time, uh, a gentleman named Chip Ock, um, some not some apple like hard cider because that was his jam. And I made him for four hours sit and explain how all of this stuff worked so I could go do my job, right? And that wasn't me walking in being like, I know what everyone should do. It was me saying, I have no idea. If you teach me, I can help connect the dots and like remove blockers. Um, I don't think it was that different at, at Collective, right? I mean, I obviously having negotiated all these contracts for the marketplace, I felt comfortable in that partnership sphere. But on the product side, um, it wasn't that different. We had a more of a nascent product function um, where the work was getting done, but it was really the ability to communicate across all the teams um, that that they needed help with, right? Like there was a team working really hard, um, but the innovations they were driving weren't weren't connecting with the client-facing teams, weren't getting validated in the right way. They weren't getting the direction. We weren't prioritizing um, and Kat knows this, but decision-making is something I'm super passionate about, right? Like, why are we doing things? How do you create discipline? Um, and I think that's what I brought to the table. I did not bring um, a lifetime of like doing the product role, right? And I think in some ways um, that was uh, the humility I brought to the table is I can't actually tell you how to do your role because I've never done it, but I can help unblock whatever is keeping you from being able to do your job better, faster, and feeling like you're having impact. Because that's the cool thing about healthcare. We all come to healthcare because we want to have impact. If you don't believe in the mission, you wouldn't pick an industry that's so painful to work in, right? But that's what gets you through the day. And um, so I, I, in all of these cases, I see my role um, as a person who can hopefully unpack a problem, um, take decisions, understanding where there are risks um, and benefits, um, drive direction and then really unblock people so that they have the autonomy to get stuff done, right? And that's, that's very much my mantra. Um, it is not that I know all the things and will tell you how to do them. Um, and it, 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 it all matches up, right? If you go back to the start of my story, which is like it's the learning and discovering that keeps me motivated and excited. And um, if you approach every problem as there's a thing to learn, uncover and unblock, then um, it makes it a little bit more interesting and candidly means like folks see you as um, someone to help, not someone um, who is going to, you know, chip away at autonomy or the ability to, to do their job. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're describing here is like hashtag leadership, right? It's um, you're, you're not saying, oh, yeah, I'm the most amazing technical product person on the planet. Right. But like you understand how to lead and manage. And like you said, um, get things done. Uh, I do want to talk about decision making because, uh, you know, we made a lot of mantra memes uh, about decision making um, during our time together. Um, and it's a hard thing. Right. It's a hard thing. And a lot of companies aren't good at it and it causes a lot of problems. So so talk about how you, I mean, because that was a big cultural shift, I felt like, you know, I think there's still improvement needed on, on many fronts, but, um, but you really moved the org, I think, culturally to a place of like, we have to make decisions to make them like kind of quickly um, and stick to them. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of decision-making um, means uh, creating uh, structure and language so that individuals in an organization have a way of surfacing trade-offs. Right. Um, 
when someone feels like they can't take on one more thing, that's not usually because they're not working hard or they're not good enough or any of those things. It's because you haven't made a decision. You haven't prioritized. And I think for a company like Collective, which I think is, is, is true of a lot of startups, there's, there's way more to do than you can possibly do. Um, and if you don't create... If you don't prioritize at the very top, there is no way that that teams under you can execute. Um, but that starts with a structure and a language. So instead of I can't do it, what or why are we doing this? How do you create a language of, yes, we can do that. However, which of these other things fall off, right? Um, and when you create that language and structure is when then you have to face the fact that you have to make decisions. Like what are we not doing is often a much harder question to answer than what do we want to do. Um, and But it takes like true discipline um, and force structure to do that. Um, and so... Uh, for me, a lot of the work um, is creating that structure and the forum and really empowering uh, folks to have that conversation, no matter where you are in an organization, to force a point of view and prioritization at every stage. Yeah, yeah. So, Which I know wasn't always fun. It's not always fun. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's never fun for me. But but so so coming from an agency world, right, where like the motto was like, just bill more hours, right? Um, we often never had to think about trade-offs because what we would do, and, and this is a little bit similar, I guess, is we would just price it to the point where if the client said no, we were like, didn't really want it anyway. Or if, or if they said yes, we were like, well, we priced that at $500, $600 an hour, so it's fine. Like, we'll just get it done. But, they're, but I, I had never, I had never, existed in a world where um where no was really an option and i remember watching you do that and i was like holy shit she'd get fired because i would get fired if i said that right in in my old life um but it it, but it really did turn things around and um i think yes it was painful for me and many other people but i i think uh you know big credit to how you managed product and and then managed you know most of the organization as coo for sure all right so talk to me about this influence without authority thing because this is a this is a thing a lot of people struggle with. Yeah, I mean, I I learned this the hard way, Kat. Um, at Athena, you know, fresh out of business school and a flashy MBA, I like stuck my elbows out and I was like, I have been told to do a thing, I will do it. I will ask you to do something, and you will just do it because I am asking you to. And it turns out like that's just not how the world works. It's a great way to piss a lot of people off who think the only thing you care about is like your agenda, right? Um, and that was like a big moment for me um, was like understanding that this is not going to be what helps me at all. Um, and so it turns out though, that it's, it's a lot like, it's a lot like selling to a client, right? Like you, you figure out where incentives are aligned and then how you can solve their problems and, and you sell to them, right? Um, well, it turns out when, when you're trying to get someone to do something that doesn't fit squarely in their job description, you're doing a lot of the same. Um, it's, it's understanding, and 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 it also goes back to decision making, right? So we use OKRs or goal setting as that incentive structure to align folks. Well, you have to find alignment mechanisms, no matter where you are, to say, I get you can't do this. I get you. There's, I'm adding one more thing to your plate. How do I help you avoid that trade off? How do I help you get your agenda um, taken care of? Um, in a way that helps us universally. Um, Sounds like blackmail um, is not part of the 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 toolkit. It can be. <laughs> I have, I, have, I told you. 
I told you I learned about APIs because I bought that six pack of apple cider. Um, so yes, bribery is app. No, I'm kidding. Um, to some extent, it is showing that you are right. It's 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 the difference between um, driving aligned incentives and then or coming down as a as a hammer, right? Telling someone to do something is maybe you'll get the result. You're not going to get the relationship or the alignment you need um, to to really work with someone. And so um, uh, I find a, a lot of it comes back to. Uh, prioritizing and aligning around really what are we trying to achieve and why are we here? Uh, but it, it really st- starts with um, understanding how to get to a common agenda. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I have learned I have learned a lot in watching you do that because you know, like sometimes I might be a hammer, like I don't know, um, and blackmail might be a thing. Who knows? Who knows? But <laughs> so the other thing I want to ask you about, Mandra, mm-hmm. is um, you know talking about all these different roles you've taken on, um, and and the, and how you were saying, look, I didn't even know what an API library was. Um, have you ever had imposter syndrome? Because this comes up a lot in our interviews. I mean, I have imposter syndrome right now, Kat. I'm not sure why I'm on this podcast. So yes, um, I'll never forget. Like literally, when the he- when the voice in my head says, "Oh my god, this is a really terrible idea," is usually when I tell it to shut up and say yes anyway. Um, when you know, when Chris called me and said, "Do you want to be COO?" I was like, "What? Are you like? I've never done this before. Can I do this? Are you sure? Do I have everyone's backing?" I said none of those said things. I said, "Of course." What took you so long, yeah. right? I've been waiting um, for this. <laughs> I've been waiting for this. I'm ready. Um, I have imposter syndrome all the time. Um, at Athena, I remember, you know, doing power poses in the bathroom, like making myself big. Because I do that too. I, I was still gonna do walk, that. <laughs> I was going to walk in and negotiate with some CEO who looked at me and was like, you're 12. Don't tell me what to do. Um, and even today, there's a lot of like grounding myself in the reality um, of where of of what I know, why it's okay, and and again coming back to saying it's okay to say you don't know, right? I think a lot of imposter syndrome is uh, feeling like you have to have all of the answers all the time, and I still have to check myself on a daily basis to be like, no, nobody has all the answers all the time. Like, ask the question. Say I don't get it, um, and for me, often the tool to break that is, is using humor, right? Um, because it, it disarms folks. Um, but but it's a it's a really hard thing, and it's a very real thing, and it, I I feel it all the time. Um, but I, it's, it's a voice I have learned to listen to almost in an opposite way. Where if it doesn't feel comfortable, that's probably because I'm doing the right thing. <laughs> Well, that is very inspirational. Yeah, I, I, my <laughs> motto for a long time is was if you don't, if you don't feel like you're going to puke at least once a week from something at work, like you're probably not trying hard enough. But um, you know that, that yeah. manifests in 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 some unfortunate ways after a while. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so the the imposter I, I so a lot of these interviews, right? These are like total lady bosses, like you, like climbing the corporate ladder, like you're up there pretty high, like you're getting pretty close to the very top, and um and 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 there aren't many of us there. Right. And so, um, it's, I, I've received so much feedback from, um, from these interviews with women reaching out and saying like, Oh, I had no idea that she also felt that way. Right. And like, Oh, it's okay to feel that way. Um, and it is right. Like it's, it's fine. Like, yeah. Like no one knows how to do everything. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. And, and not just that, like you can either gravitate towards the people who feed that story or you can actively choose to reject it. Um, coming out of Athena, I remember talking to a recruiter who said, 
Um, honey, honey, if someone gives you a C-suite title, you should probably question how great that company is. And I, instead of saying, you're so smart, I believe you. I said, I'm never calling you again. It was like the, the Julia Roberts moment, you know, like big mistake, huge, you know, like, like I'm not, I could choose to take that to the mat and say, this is, I believe you. Or I can say like, that's cool. That's your version of the world. I'm not going to subscribe to it. Right. But yeah. I think that's really hard to do because I think we orient towards whatever feels comfortable. And sometimes having imposter syndrome feels more comfortable than challenging that version of reality. Yeah. Yeah. And to your point about like the power posing. So, so I like was very, like I actively did the power posing back in the day. And we've talked about this too, right? Cause you like noticed me wearing some like very uncomfortable dress um, on zoom during the pandemic when clearly I was not going anywhere but my house. And I told you like, before I have a big call or like a big presentation, I actually will put on my high heels and walk around my kitchen. Right. And like, you know, I walk around like I'm, like I'm something. Um, but I think it makes a difference, right. To just like, I mean, it, for a while for me, it was truly acting. And now I think I just like feel like my balls are bigger than everybody else's, right? So it's fine. <laughs> because they are. Because they are. Clearly. Um, but yeah, but I, I, it's, it's interesting to hear someone like you who's who's really like done some amazing things also feels that way sometimes. So, um, okay. So so talking about all, all these cool things you've done, what is the thing you are most proud of out of your career to date? That is a really hard question. Um, I'm incredibly proud of what we've achieved at Collective. Um, I think that it, um, it was, it's been a real roller coaster. Um, um, but I'm, I'm proud of myself for taking on challenges, even when they weren't comfortable. Um, there have been a lot and whether it's Collective or elsewhere, there's lots of moments where like self-doubt has been easy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm incredibly proud at Collective of us being squarely focused on the impact that we're having and orienting ourselves around that. Um, it was a lot of the reason I, I left Athena is I ended up in uh, my last role there. I was um, uh, doing platform product management. Um, mm-hmm. And I found myself in the talk about imposter syndrome. It was like this uh, absurd moment where I had a lot of chief architects at the table. Remember, I'm not technical. And they were all listening to me. And I was like, why are you listening to me? This is not where I'm supposed to be. I'm way too far removed from like the end users and that impact and the whole part of healthcare I first fell in love with. Um, and that was, a, that was a tough decision, um, but it was the right one. Um, and, and I think um, throwing my hat in the ring for that head of product role was a tough decision. I saying yes to COO when I was um, still on maternity leave with my second kid. That's right. Um, was... <laughs> Uh, was a hard decision. Um, and, and I'm really proud of that. And that I guess I, I copped out of your question of like, what is the thing I'm proudest of? Um, but I'm proudest of, of, I think, the teams at Collective that um, um, are now, are, are, are just crushing it, right? And the, and the, the culture and, um, and all that we've achieved from an impact perspective, which, um, you know, um, in this new chapter um, uh, should go even that much further. Um, it's, an, it's an awesome thing. Um, to, to feel like uh, we achieved together. You were a big part of that. Yeah, it was a good time. It was a fun time. It was the best of times. <laughs> so, okay, well, all right. You told me what you're the most proud of. I love, and this is an interview question that I always use. It's super annoying, but like, what is your biggest failure? Um, I would say my biggest failure was probably that um, my, my first call it you're at Athena, right? Where I was, I, oh, I, 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 
a whole year, right? Um, just the orientation. I achieved all of the business objectives, but I was doing all this damage to like, like how I set up my brand. Um, and it was just because of, um, you know, the wrong orientation. Um, and I, 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 I was grateful. And this is where things like coaching and 360s are really meaningful. Um, I had a, I, I, they gave me an executive coach um, and he did a 360. And that feedback around like, hey, when I talk to mom there, I feel like she's mostly oriented around how to get her stuff done. Um, like, does she even know who I am or care about what's going on with me? It was really meaningful. Um, and it, and it, and it like pointed to a pretty big fail on how I had approached it, right? It's a great example of where like the business achieved with the business, I was achieving the business goals, but I was actually putting myself on a path to succeed. Mm. Um, and I think, um, that, that very much turned around how I approach problems and people and teams. Um, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I look at that as pretty, it was a low, it was a low moment that, that led to a lot of, um, I think change in how I do things. Mm, yeah. I, I love hearing stories like that. So I, I brought this up before too, but I had a coach in, um, in earlier agency days that same thing, like you just don't know how you're perceived. You just don't, uh, you know, you think people think one thing about you and it's kind of the other. Uh, and, um, I had feedback like that too. It was a little bit different because we're different people, but, um, yeah, just, you know, how, how you present yourself to clients, how you present yourself to the people on the team. And like, and I, you know, had this, and I still do kind of have like the stench of overconfidence and I would walk in to rooms and people were terrified of me. Um, and like, you know, like I've, I've heard that feedback since, so maybe I haven't improved much, but, but I remember being like, whoa, like, holy shit. And then we did 360s pretty often as well. And um, it can hurt to see that stuff, right? Especially when you're like me and it keeps showing up the same feedback every year, right? <laughs> but I think well, it's so meaningful. Yeah. I mean, some of that feedback I've forgiven myself for, like I've heard forever that I shouldn't play poker because like what I'm thinking and feeling will often show up right on my face. And at some point I'm like, that's my face. Like I'm going to hear that forever. Right. Kat's laughing because she's seen me. She's seen this situation over and over again. Um, so yeah, I'm just like, what? Um, but, uh, but yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's feedback that you're allowed to look at and say, and Marie Kondo and put away and other feedback you should probably act on. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, 360s, uh, are sometimes a terrible waste of time, but sometimes can be really useful. And that was one that was like pretty meaningful to me. Yeah. And, you, and sometimes you're not in an organization, right. That invests in that kind of thing. And so it's hard to get yeah. that. Um, it's hard to get, you know, you, you can have mentors and blah, blah, blah. But I think even just having a community that uh, of people who are honest with you and will just say like, Hey, you're kind of an asshole um, is <laughs> I think meaningful um, and something that people should try to get. I, it's certainly been one of the biggest influencers in my career is just having a bunch of lady bosses who aren't afraid to tell me when I'm being dumb. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't, I totally agree with you, right? For me, that was you at Collective. And it was because um, we, ha we had each other as part of that management team. And it's where like... We were kind of trucking along there for a while. <laughs> but it's where these conversations about representation are really important, right? Like mm. if you don't see someone like you or see someone who finds someone you can relate to... Um, on your team, it's just a lot harder. It's a lot harder to, to get what you need to have someone who can empathize with you and build that trust that it takes to say, Hey, you're, you're screwing things up. Like I care about you, but like, 
like we talk about radical candor, like it's just super easy. That starts with a base of trust that starts with feeling like you have psychological safety. And for me, um, having other lady bosses creates a lot of psychological safety, right? Like being able to look at whether it's a C-suite or wherever and see someone who looks like you or has like some of the same stuff you do is like really meaningful in driving that day-to-day motivation and wanting to get to that next level. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, just understanding perspective, right. And, and this is, this is a little bit off topic, but Mondra and I used to kind of um, crusade on certain things, like whether we knew we were crusading or not. Uh, but there's one thing that I'm really proud of you for doing at Collective. And, and that was you, you changed the uh, maternity benefits for women at Collective. And um, I mean, they were fine-ish, right. It was pretty standard before, but I remember you telling me, and it was like the same day that you were announcing the pregnancy with your second child over, we were both over video. And, and at this time, you know, most of the executive team was in person. So it was us on video. And I remember like you, you like brought it up and like, everyone was kind of like, Whoa. and then I like went for the jugular. I think I was like spitting on my screen over it. Um, but, but like, but, but I mean, I probably, I may have like not even helped you because it was, it was so kind of like, I went for it, but, um, but you, you, you pushed in your influencing way um, and eventually got some amazing maternity benefits uh, for the company. And I, that the first company that I ever worked at that had such um, amazing benefits for women. And I thought it was super important, especially for a company based in Utah um, to have that. And um, I remember when it came through, I was like, how'd you do that? <laughs> because I don't remember you taking your spear out and going for someone um, like I would have, but no. I, I still think it's and, awesome. and- well, I appreciate it. I'm very proud of us doing that too. Um, and I think it's where our styles are, are a little different, but complementary, right? Um, um, I've, I've told Kat before, um, my, my approach to things like negotiating has always been to be data-driven. And that's what helped us in that situation is we looked at the data and the data said, like, maybe we weren't doing what was market. And if we were, maybe we needed to be based on recruiting and many other things, right? Um, a lot of, I think, things like paternity, maternity leave or um, just how, how we drive diversity in the workplace. Um, if you don't equate it to business results, which you should, right? There's lots of data on businesses mm-hmm. doing better, making better decisions, um, being much more successful if you have diversity and, and um, um, you know, more women represented at every level. Um, but you have to believe that it's actually influencing your business. And I think being being grounded in that data is incredibly helpful to get your point across. Also going for the jugular. Both work. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes, you know, one may, well, I don't know. They probably both take as much energy. I think one just results in higher spikes in blood pressure, you know, whatever. Uh, so, so can we talk about being a working mom, working moms? Okay. So yeah. Andra, um, what announced her second pregnancy, right? Like went for maternity benefits, like basically crushed it. And then you had, you had your second child, like the week the world shut down <laughs> and then you, and then you yeah. were asked to take the COO role a few weeks before your maternity leave ended. You were like, yeah, totally mm-hmm. got it during the pandemic still. Um, and you were still yeah. alive. So tell us about, tell us about how you manage that. <laughs> I'm alive, but very tired cat. I'm very tired. Um, I think, I mean, I don't, it's been a crazy year, right? Um, for a lot of folks. And I actually, I consider myself lucky because there have been a lot of highs, right? So like um, getting promoted during maternity leave is not most what most people experience. And I feel very lucky that I was in that position. That being said, I like, it was a lot to, to take on all at the same time. 
Um, and I, I mean, I think part of what has helped has been being able to be a little bit vulnerable um, with our organization. So I actually remember um, during the pandemic, uh, we had the leadership team send out an email a week to the organization to help us keep connected. This was a team that was, was the office culture was really meaningful to a lot of us, even those of us who were remote, like being there. Um, and when I sent mine, I talked about the fact that like, Self-care is incredibly important, right? Um, it's not something we say enough in the workplace. I think we've all learned we have to in the last year think about things like our, our team members' um, mental health. Uh, what is going on with them, right? If you have a conversation and things are off, it's not all about the business. It's what might be happening in their personal lives that are causing them to show up that way and, and asking that question. Um, and that's been a lot of me being able to share what's going on with me, I think, has hopefully... Um, helped others um, feel closer. I've had those days where um, my daughter came home from preschool with the sniffles. We lost childcare. And as a result, all meetings had to be rescheduled to nap time. And I was very overt about why I was doing that. Um, so I think for a long time in previous roles, right, taking all of the things that happen when you lose coverage or your child is sick was something to like, sweep under the table and you put on your blazer and you show up anyway. Um, and I'm actually really excited for the move where we see each other's kids on camera. We see what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and we have been forced to share that more human side, no matter if you're a mom, a dad, don't have kids. Like it doesn't matter. We all have had personal struggles in the last year. And I think that's brought us closer together. Um, and I know that that has helped me actually really deepen relationships, even through, yeah. 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 Well, you handled it with more grace than I think I have. And I do not have newborns. I have, I have older children, but, um, but yeah, I think, I think for me, the pandemic was, um, I almost didn't feel it. Like I've, I've always been told I have high resilience. And then I think I all of a sudden will just crash. Right. Like, so I was like, this is fine. Got this world's burning down. No problem. Work till midnight for the past six weeks. Not an issue. And then like all of a sudden, Right. And people definitely saw that yeah. on a regular basis. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I don't know if it was good or not <laughs> for the business or for the team, but um, they definitely saw the real deal there multiple times in a row. So, you know, I think people had a lot of grace have still hopefully. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think it's been an, you know, you say, I don't know if it was good for the business. Well, for me, it was a lot of reframing that, and I know like for you, it was your run, right? Like you going out for a run was what kept yeah. you sane for like a lot of weeks. And all for that me, wine. It's like, yeah. And the wine, wine also. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it was Peloton and these, and, and like going for a walk, making sure you get outside. Like I go a week and not see outside. Right. right. Um, and I, I used to think of that as like, I am not working. I'm doing something for me and reframing that as like, this is what it takes for me to be a, to show up at work as a contributing member. And so it's best for the business that I take care of me um, is really helpful. And I think true, right? Like that self-care isn't optional. It can't be. And I think I've said that for years. I've like really felt it until last year where it's like a very, it's become a very true thing that I feel on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. Yeah. I did the run thing. And, and I was, I was telling another working mom um, over the summer, you know, when things like clearly weren't really getting better and we were all still stuck. Um, and, you know, our, our Delta sky mile status kept getting extended, thankfully. Um, and I remember telling her, like, I would in my mind map out longer and longer distances. Like I was literally running away from my family every morning. <laughs> 
time. But, but the same thing, it was one of the few things that I felt like I have a different thing that happens in my day. I've broken up my day. It's only me. I'm by myself. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a good runner, so I couldn't take calls while I was running. Right. Um, so it was, it was definitely me time, but, um, so we're talking about lady boss stuff. Um, so, so as a woman, do you feel like there's been any sort of unique struggle, uh, to your gender in your career? No, not at all. I feel yeah, like it's either. been totally, totally great. Yeah, agree. Same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, uh, so yes, uh, of course. I think all of us have a lot of shared experiences of kind of where has gender played a part. Um, you know, things as small as like, hey, of course you assumed I was the EA on that email and I'm going to schedule the meeting. Um, all the way to kind of bigger feelings of like, hey, am I, I'm not, I feel like my gender is playing into whether I'm getting to that next level or, or being given the opportunities. Um, for me, I think a place that I've had to negotiate um, is really around this idea of emotion, right? Mm. Um, I over so I talked about the fact that like my, I'm pretty expressive, um, and and early on I I didn't get promoted early, and the reason that was quoted was because I was too emotional, um, and then on a subsequent review, I was told I'm not vulnerable and open enough, um, and it just it felt like there was this like needle, like there was a tiny little, like I had to thread the needle of how was, how much was the right amount of emotion to show up with. Mm. Um, at the me- in the meantime, right. I've worked, you know, it, you all you have to, there are lots of men who, when they cry, um, they're rewarded. It's like, Oh yeah. Like, oh, he's so vulnerable. He's oh my so gosh. <laughs> and vulnerable. Like, Wow. Right. Um, and, and like so, <laughs> right. And so I'm, I'm still figuring out that balance. I think it gets easier as you get more senior. And I think some of these words have gotten less tabooed, but, um, or, or, you know, our, our people are, have to be more thoughtful about them. Um, but for sure, I think, you know, uh, it, it makes a difference. Um, and I think there are just some structural issues that we need to confront about what we associate with gender and what we don't, even when it's not overt. No one said you're not getting promoted because you're a woman, but the word, words like emotion, emotional are not things that are used against other genders um, right. as, as potential issues, right? Right, right, absolutely. And then one of the, one of the things that I think I I loved doing with you, um, with other women in the room too. And and again, a lot of this stuff is I don't feel like anyone's like really trying to be an asshole, right? But um, I think I think it was you and Maggie O'Keefe, right, who were really big on the idea of amplification in meetings. Um, so you know, mm-hmm. as happens sometimes, if an idea was um, kind of capped off by a man after you already said it, um, that was someone some woman in the room would be kind of in tune with that and say, oh yeah, like Bonner just said that same. thing. Thing, right? Total. I'm glad you agree with it, right? <laughs> Just making sure it was called out. Um, I do think we actually made progress um, with, with that kind of method. Oh, I, I think that's absolutely right. And again, like, and again, that's where having more women in the room is helpful, right? Other people that are tuned to, to this, because it's something you have to actually really focus on, right? It's the same thing as like, being cut off, right? Like I have, I have a sweatshirt like channeling Kamala Harris that says I am speaking because I, 
Like that moment was really big. And I think for a lot of people, they're like, what's the big deal? And I was like, you have oh, no, no idea how awesome like... that to be like, can I just finish? Right. Right. Um, uh, if anything, I actually get the reverse a little bit where I cut people off a lot. <laughs> I'm working on that too. Um, but but I think that the amplification and just like having others in the room that are attuned to, to some of these behaviors, because you're right, no one's trying to be an asshole. Everyone has good intentions. And a lot of these like microaggressions get really enhanced over Zoom, right? It's mm-hmm. a lot harder. You can't read body language. You can't really, if there's a lot of people, you can't see them trying to cut in. And if you right. don't help each other out, it's just not going to happen. Right. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, so, okay. The, it, it, it is funny. I, you told me that story before about, about, oh, you're too emotional and, oh, you're too cold and clinical, right? And like, I agree, like, where is kind of the middle? Um, but, but I also think the way, the way that you handle situations where, where you are kind of calm, I mean, I, I, I actually would not classify you as I've known you as an emotional person, right? Um, I, I think you, I think you are pretty calm, cool and collected. I mean, like, whatever, like, maybe that's just compared to me. Like, I would not call myself that. Um, but but I, I think it's actually one of your superpowers that you're able to handle that um, kind of situation, like a very high pressure situation um, and and not, you know, kind of burst into a ball of flames. Um, so I want to ask you, uh, what do you think your superpower is? Um, I think my superpower is, I think it's often just saying the things out loud and not and and being willing to take personal risk to do that, right? So personal risk can mean I might be asking a stupid question. Personal risk can be getting to the end of the meeting and saying, "Did we achieve anything?" Um, and like annoying people that you just like wasted a lot of time. Um, personal risk can be like advocating for someone else um, in that moment, right? Saying like, "Oh, like amplification." Um, uh, but sometimes it's it's like being willing to just say like that that the things you're bringing to the table have nothing to do with the business. And I think that, again, if we go back to like decision-making or being calm, cool, and collected, a lot of that comes back to just having a pretty clear framework, which is if you make the right decisions for the business um, and for the people, everything else seems to follow. But I think um, understanding that and orienting towards that is really hard all the time. Um, and if you can have that discipline and be the voice in the room that that is saying... I'm not sure what the doubt, like what's the downside of just being vocal about some of these things versus like texting somebody or like messaging them outside. Um, I'm not sure it's a superpower. Um, I think it's just kind of an instinct, but I think mm. um, if nothing else, it helps surface all this stuff that you then have to go take care of. <laughs> right. Well, you especially do now in your current role. You're the one that has to fix it. <laughs> oh, well, better you than me. <laughs> All right. So on the other side of that, so, so, um, so what, what would you say is kind of your weak point? Like what, what is something that gets you in trouble? Negating what I've said before. So it's great to be business oriented. Um, but I think one of my weaknesses is when I'm trying to get stuff done, I forget about the people aspect of the work, which is Mm. really, really important. Um, so it is something I'm constantly trying to focus back in on, um, uh, I remember at one stage we were just trying to do so much um, and get so much done that I had to write down, shoot the shit so that for the first five minutes of a meeting, instead of saying, where are we at on this? I took a minute 
to make sure folks felt like they could, like there was more to why we were together than just about getting shit done. So I have a tendency, like, it's not surprising, right? I'm like process oriented. I'm like prioritization, decision making. I do have a tendency to like, sometimes like really zero in on what we're trying to achieve um, and not focus on the bigger picture. Um, and, and a lot of the roles I've taken on have forced me, like forced me to break out of that habit because especially right now with the pandemic, if you forget about the people side of things, you're just not going to be successful as a business. Um, and, and I think the last year has been a, a really big wake up call for a lot of us on this, but it's a strong reminder as to why that's something like I got to shoot the shit. Right. And <laughs> not just in a fake way. Like I really care. Like it's just, it's a reminder um, that like, we can't forget about the people aspect of work. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Uh, so, uh, you know, we've been talking for almost an hour, which is, uh, you know, like all these, I like can't stop talking to people. So I apologize that we're <laughs> been keeping you this long, but, um, but I think I would love to know if you'd be willing to tell us all like what's next for you, right? Like how many other things are you going to master? Like <laughs> what, what, for if you, you know, and uh, blah, 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 you'll be a point click care forever and all that stuff. But like, what, what, what's your goal? Like, what do you want to do next? That's yeah, a great question. Um, I'm always asking myself, um, like, what what does enough look like? I'm not sure that exists, um, and that that's both um, traumatizing and exciting. Um, so I am right now um, still on the learning track. I have a lot to learn about the Point of Care Core business. Um, we have this business to continue to grow and drive a lot of impact, um, uh, and that's where I'm focused right now. I think from a next perspective. I don't expect to be anywhere away from healthcare anytime soon. Um, I'm still pretty hooked. Um, uh, part of going from Athena to collective was um, going from provider to provider um, and payer and, and you know, government. Um, and so continuing to broad, broaden that, right, um, and exposure and, and continuing to gain depth is somewhere I'm definitely excited. There's just so much happening in our industry um, that continuing to, to dive into the problems and fix them is definitely where I see myself um, and continuing to, um, to hopefully be in uh, afford, afforded leadership positions uh, to drive innovation forward. Um, so um, it's, it's, it's vague because it's still vague in my mind, um, but I'm definitely excited. And then in the meantime, I'm also um, starting to, to, to look at, um, you know, boards where I can continue to think about other businesses and, and hopefully, hopefully lend some of this crazy experience, uh, to, uh, to some other businesses, um, as well. So, uh, that's my plug. Um, you know, uh, as part I love of this, it. I, I am, I'm, I'm looking at that on the side too. That's awesome. Well, well, thank you, Mandra, for sharing all of your thoughts and dealing with me for another hour out of your day <laughs> and ripping back and forth with me. This was awesome. Mandra is all over the LinkedIn if you want to find her. Um, I think she tweets once every six months, uh, but uh, you you can when, find When Kat tells me to. I may tell her to tweet the link to her own uh, interview. So we'll see about that. But thank you, Mandra. This has been super fun. We hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as we did. And we hope to continue finding creative ways to connect and celebrate each other. If you're on Clubhouse, you can find me and Sharice there every Tuesday and Thursday from 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific time in the Hit Like a Girl pod club room, which is new. All right. In the meantime, be well. Talk soon.